Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, our 500th episode is fast approaching, and let me tell you, you're in for a hell of a ride. And not just for one episode, either. Let me whet your appetite, get you looking forward to what's looming on the horizon while not giving too much away. We've lined up an exceptional two-episode celebration spanning both 499 and 500. As it stands, the pair of shows will each be about twice as long as your regular weekly episode, and will feature some familiar names and special guests, both behind the mic and on the other side of the pen or computer keyboard. We're really excited to share this milestone with you, and I just couldn't keep it all in the bag any longer. But with so much going on behind the scenes to prepare, I don't really have a whole lot else to share with you tonight. So, rather than me ramble on trying to fill dead air, let's get right to our story. 
we have one longer tale for you this evening, which comes from Jude Reed. Jude lives in Scotland and writes in the gaps between work full-time as a doctor, wrangling her kids and trying to wear out a border collie. She likes climbing inadvisably large mountains and running away from zombies, and drinks a powerful load of coffee. Children of the Night, join me for Jude Reed's The Boleskine House Affair, a Tales to Terrify original. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This whole bloody thing's a waste of time, Jack said, as I rattled the little Albion to a stop outside Boleskin House. Not for the first time that day I wished that I had left Detective Constable Henderson and his miserable temper at home in Glasgow, but he had been doggedly insistent on accompanying me to Loch Ness. In a moment of weakness I had capitulated in haste, and the journey had given me ample time to repent at leisure. I didn't imagine it would be to your taste, I said. In fact, I don't recall your name being on the invitation. I didn't like the thought of you driving all that way on your own, that's all, Hilda, he said, playing the wounded innocent to perfection. Ready? or abandoning you to that sort all evening. I took off my driving goggles and tossed them into the footwell. And what sort is that? You know, 
He waved a vague hand toward the house at the end of the driveway. It was little more than a two-story cottage, the whitewashed stone of its walls lending it a ghostly air against the gloomy hills beyond. Table wrappers, ectoplasm generators, that sort. My sort, you mean. Well, Crowley does all this magic business, doesn't he? That's what I'm here to find out. Jack snorted. All a front for opium fiends and wife-swappers, if you ask me. I had come to Boleskin House at the behest of the Alethian Society, the secret organization of occultists, of which I was a practicing member, though generally there were rather fewer spells cast than committee meetings attended. Crowley's Order of the Golden Dawn was an even less convincing powerhouse of the arcane. Jack's opinion of them was shared by most of my society's illuminates. Or at least it had been until Crowley himself had issued a public invitation to witness indisputable evidence of his abnatural powers. The bait had proved irresistible to my superiors, and they had sent me to nibble on the hook. I clattered the wrought-iron knocker against the door, and a squat, graying little woman in a faded black dress opened it a moment later. "'Miss Hilda Roxburgh,' I said, "'here at Mr. Crowley's invitation.' "'You're expected, madam.' I handed her my hat and overcoat and straightened the clothes beneath. It was a neat little two-piece in cream wool, of which I was rather fond. Jack was wearing the grey Harris tweeds I had given him two Christmases ago, the colour a perfect complement to his sharp blue eyes. This way, she said, and led us down a dingy wood-panelled hall. Delighted you could join us! The voice, a honeyed tenor erudite and brimming with warmth, was emanating from a gaunt young man. He was a stranger, but the face was so familiar to me from the London newspapers and the society's file that I almost felt I knew him already. A fluid black robe hung from his shoulders, and there was a delicate quality to the high cheekboned features that made him alluring, if not exactly handsome. He kissed my cheeks, continental fashion, overwhelming my senses with the heady scent of cinnamon, ginger, and something dark, resinous, and bitter. Mr. Crowley, I said as calmly as I could, thank you so much for the invitation. The honor is mine. His voice was grave, heavy with sincerity. I was beginning to understand the magnetism that drew women to him, and men too, if rumor was to be believed. And Detectable Constable Henderson, please be welcome. Miss Roxburgh, how good of you to bring your... He stopped, the hesitation artfully timed. Your friend. I had rarely felt less friendly towards Jack 
but I let the description pass without correction. Miss Roxburgh and I have been of use to each other in the past, when matters of the law and her specialist interest have intersected. And other points of intersection, too, if rumor is to be believed, Crowley said, and I could feel Jack bristle at the insinuation. I stifled a laugh just as the loosely draped figure of a woman moved behind Crowley. He turned, his angular face lighting up at her approach. And this is my nuit, my scarlet woman, my Lilith, my beloved Babylon. The newcomer, only barely out of her teens, was strikingly tall, with vivid red hair that fell in waves to her waist. Even more strikingly, she was entirely naked beneath her open black robe. Jack made a strangled, choking noise, and she smiled at the effect her attire, or rather, the lack of it, was having on him. Nui, I said, what a lovely name. Did you get it from a book? The woman stepped closer to Crowley and accepted his proprietorial arm around her waist. The same bitter spice smell that radiated from Crowley was also emanating from a delicate china cup in her hand. You must excuse us now, Crowley said. The hour is late, and we must retreat into seclusion to allow the ritual preparations to be made. Mrs. Gillies will show you to the parlor. The parlor turned out to be a dimly lit room with wood paneling covering three walls and a seven-foot-tall mural depicting Crowley in full wizardly attire down to the wand and pointed hat on the fourth. Can't say I think much of the decor in here, Jack muttered, or the perfume for that matter. A bromelain oil, I said, cinnamon, ginger, and myrrh. Improves magical potency, allegedly. A waste of perfectly good mulling spices is what it is. There were three other people there ahead of us. I recognized the plain middle-aged lady as Edith Bland, who I had met once in London and who wrote books for children under her maiden name. Beside her was a spindly, anxious-looking youth of around twenty, and a ginger-haired man a little older than me. Louis Spence, the older man said, in the clipped sing-song accent of the Northeast. Editor at the Scotsman, here to see if there's anything of interest to the reading public. He half rose, shook Jack's hand, and ignored me entirely. I heard Crowley welcoming you in the hall. A policeman, is it? Here to make sure we all behave ourselves? His lips stretched into a tight, bloodless smile. Mrs. Bland'll be glad you've brought your lady friend. As it happens, Jack's here as my guest, not the other way around. The thin young man bounded from his chair and offered a spidery hand to us both. The name's Alvin Langdon Coburn. He was an American, draped in a crumpled linen lounge suit that badly needed ironing, 
but what really drew the eye was the device hanging around his neck. It resembled nothing more than a bulky pair of binoculars with a leather-bound cylinder affixed to the top. Noticing my interest, Coburn positively beamed. My vortoscope, he said. It's my own creation, a camera fitted with a series of prismatic lenses designed to capture frequencies of light not visible to the human eye. Alvin's here to take snaps of the ghosties, Spence drawled. Vortographs, Coburn corrected. I'm hoping for a picture of whatever Mr. Crowley manages to summon up. The Abramelin Rite summons the caster's guardian angel, I said, and glanced around my companions. Mrs. Bland's face was a perfect reflection of her name. While Coburn was nodding so vigorously, I thought his neck might snap under the strain. Jack snorted. And you're here to report on angels for your newspaper, are you, Mr. Spence? I'm not a believer, if that's what you're asking, the newspaper man said. But, as in all things, I see the merit of keeping an open mind. And if there are ghosts to be found, Boleskine would be the place to find them. Absolutely, Mrs. Bland had pulled a ball of yarn and a pair of knitting needles from her portmanteau. The house was built on the foundations of a medieval church. It burned to the ground in the 16th century, with every parishioner inside. They say the dead walk here. Her mouth quirked up into a smile as she paused, though her fingers never stopped moving. There's even a rumor about a local wizard. No wonder Mr. Crawley was so keen to acquire it, Coburn said. Though he's spent precious little time here lately, said Spence. Some nasty business a few years ago with the staff. Mrs. Bland nodded. The groundskeeper, a Presbyterian, I believe, got himself blind drunk and beat his wife half to death. When he recovered, he swore on his sainted mother's grave that a demon had taken possession of him. His daughter died a few months later, suddenly, at the village school, and his infant son took a fatal seizure on his mother's knee, hanged himself a year after. I remembered hearing that Mrs. Bland had lost her own son a few years before, and marveled at how light and level her voice remained. My two daughters had been packed safely off to London to join their paternal grandmother for Aid al-Fitr. The relative inconvenience of the journey by far outweighed in their eyes by the prospect of another round of presents and sweetmeats so soon after Christmas. The talk of children reminded me of how badly I missed them. A bad business, Mrs. Bland concluded. The faintest rustle of bombazine drew my attention to the doorway, where Crowley's housekeeper was standing motionless. Her eyes were focused on a distant point on the other side of the parlor wall, and then the moment passed, and her air of bustling animation returned. I'm to take you to the dining room now. I'll attend to you first, then see to the master, 
They won't be joining us then, Coburn said, his face falling. Not until later. It can't be the whole Abramelin ritual, can it? Coburn said, once we were at the dining room table. It's said to take a full six months of fasting and spiritual cleansing. I heard rumors he attempted it before, I said, careful to keep my voice light, before his last trip to London. Probably doesn't take as long the second time around, Jack said, a quirk at the corner of his mouth. I suspected the imminent prospect of food was lifting his temper, my theory proven correct as Mrs. Gillies brought in a tureen of soup that was equal parts smoked fish, potatoes, and cream, which Jack practically inhaled. Delicious, I said firmly, forestalling any offer he might make to tidy up my leftovers. Platters of mutton, gravy, and more potatoes followed. Mrs. Bland told us about the chaotic brood of children and a wish-granting fairy who featured in her next book. Coburn explained the workings of his vortiscope with more enthusiasm than clarity, and even Spence thawed enough to share a journalistic anecdote or two. It was once the plates had been cleared and we were enjoying a glass of port, with Spence's suggestion that the ladies might like to retire to the drawing-room and allow the gentlemen to smoke, treated with the contempt it deserved, that I saw a robed figure move across the open doorway, the candlelight catching on a flash of red beneath the hood. I thought she was supposed to be in pre-ritual seclusion, Jack murmured into my ear. Perhaps she popped out for a pre-ritual walk, I said. Or a pre-ritual drink, by the looks of it. True enough, Nui was walking with an ungainly motion that was at odds with the grace she had evidenced before. A moment later we heard her climbing to the first floor, her shoes rapping smartly on the wooden stairs. I suppose it'll be time for the performance soon, I said and almost immediately there was the crash of breaking china from over our heads and a yelp from Mrs. Gillies. I'll go, I said, and hurried upstairs to see the housekeeper bending over an upturned tray and a broken cup outside a closed door. Beg pardon, Miss Roxburgh, she said. I was just clearing away Miss Nui's tea things and I dropped the tray. Clumsy of me. Crowley's bedroom door flew open to reveal the magician, naked except for a loosely tied linen loincloth, his face pale and eyes wide. Ritual seclusion, he bellowed, then slammed the door hard enough to make the crockery jump again. I choked down a laugh. Let me help you with that, I said and despite her protests, accompanied her to the kitchen, where we disposed of the ruined cup and placed the rest of the dishes in the Belfast sink. Are there other staff here? I asked her, as we returned to the dining room. No, miss, she said. Used to be, but Mr. Crowley prefers his privacy. And what do you think of all this ritual business? 
her expression shut like a slammed door. His business and none of mine. No ghosts, just a broken cup, I said, resuming my place at the table, while Mrs. Gillies took up a watchful position just inside the door. Our host's eventual arrival was heralded by the creaking of the stairs, and he emerged fully enrobed in layers of black silk drapery, a beaten silver circlet around his brow and a twisted blackthorn staff in one hand. That's a better look than the pointy hat, though not by much, Jack whispered. It wouldn't suit you. Crowley tapped his staff on the wooden floor. The hour is at hand, he said. I think you're still one short, Spence said. Crowley glanced at Mrs. Gillies, who shrugged. Miss Nui's in her room, sir. I cleared her dishes away ten minutes ago. Jack shot me a look, and I resolved that any comment about women taking their time to get ready would be met with a swift and violent reaction. Perhaps we should check on her, Coburn said, in case she needs help. One would expect a grown woman to put on a dressing gown without assistance, Spence said. The clock struck eleven. We waited as it struck the quarter, and then the half. Mrs. Bland rose to her feet and tucked away her knitting. Perhaps you and I should go upstairs, Miss Roxburgh, she said, in case Miss Nui has fallen asleep. There was something in her voice that sent a shudder down my spine, goose over grave. Jack must have heard it too and got to his feet alongside us. I'll walk you up. We all trooped up the creaking stairs, Crowley taking the last few at a bound and hammering out his impatience on Nui's door. Nui, wake up, he bellowed little remaining of the honeyed tones in which he had addressed her earlier. He tried the handle, locked, then pounded on the wood again. If I may, I put my eye to the keyhole. The room beyond was gloomy and still, but it was the smell that struck me first. Blood, I said and stepped aside. Jack shattered the lock with one smooth kick his early career spent patrolling the parish of Leith, having left him with certain invaluable skills. He and I were first through the door into a room that had once been a boudoir and was now a charnel house. Nui's naked body was on the bed, her long red hair spread about her shoulders, a silver-handled knife, an athame stuck hilt-deep in her chest. Blood coated every surface, soaking the coverlet and running onto the carpet. On all four walls, row upon row of letters, Arabic, Latin, Hebrew, had been painted in blood. Coburn gasped. Crowley let out a sigh. I lifted Nui's wrist to check for a pulse, and answered Jack's unspoken question with a shake of my head. Dear God, Spence said. The room was suddenly stiflingly hot, and for a moment I thought I might faint. 
I looked for a glass of water, but Nui's nightstand was empty, except for the heavy brass key that matched the keyhole in her door. She's dead, Coburn said. She's... but... how? Crowley fell to his knees beside the bed and reached out as though to stroke his dead lover's face, stopping with his fingertips an inch short of her skin. The door was locked, he sputtered. Which of you... how could... We've all been in plain sight of the others since she went into that room, Lewis Spence said. His voice was level, but he was worrying at the signet ring on his right hand. All but you, Crowley. What do you mean by that? An ugly flush was spreading across the magician's features. Are you insinuating that I, that I did this? Unless you can convince us that one of your conjured spirits was to blame. Mrs. Bland was squatting by the bed, skirts drawn up over her knees in a most unbecoming fashion, pointing to yet more marks painted in blood on the floorboards. Tell me, Mr. Crowley, was this where you intended to complete your working this evening? Of course not. Crowley's eyes went from Nui to Mrs. Bland, then back again. The ceremonial space, the sanded path open to the north. Here seems to have done just as well, Mrs. Bland said. The vital fluid isn't blood. Crowley gestured helplessly into the empty air around himself. The working was to be tantric, the act of physical congress to conclude on the stroke of midnight, not murder, not this. Detective, he turned towards Jack, his arms spread wide. Surely you don't believe these allegations, these unfounded accusations. I'll keep my opinions to myself for now, he said. I don't suppose you've a telephone in the house. Crowley scowled and shook his head. No. You'll be lucky if there's one between here and Inverness. Mrs. Bland, would you be kind enough to take the gentleman and Mrs. Gillies down to the parlor? I said. I imagine a glass of whiskey would do a great deal for everyone's nerves around now. I know I'd appreciate one. And what about you? The newspaper man said. I'll stay. And you're some kind of authority on murder, are you? No, Jack said before I could reply, but I am, and Miss Roxburgh stays. So kind of you, detective. I rolled my eyes at him just so he knew that I hadn't been waiting for his permission. And what if the killer strikes again downstairs, or, or, Crawley was sputtering, what if it's one of you two? I think we all know who the suspect is here, Spence said, scowling at the magician from beneath beetling ginger brows. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, Mrs. Bland said, putting a coaxing hand on Crowley's elbow. Let the detective do his job, Mr. Crowley, and the rest of us can take care of each other. Leave the doors open, I said. 
We're only a few yards away, if there's a problem. The housekeeper was the last to go, lingering on the threshold as if there was something she wanted to say. Then abruptly she turned and followed the others back to the parlor. Well then, I said once they had gone, what do you suppose happened here? Jack took a silver case out of his pocket, offered me a Turkish cigarette, and took one himself. I would have preferred a cup of good black coffee, but I took one anyway and rolled it unlit between my fingers as I inspected the ritual marks on the walls and floor. They were painted with tremendous care, though the blood had congealed irregularly as if the painter had paused often between brush strokes. There was no smearing or blurring of the lines on the floor to suggest a struggle. From what I could tell, Nui had gone to her death as gently as a lamb. She might have been sleeping, if not for the obscenity of the knife protruding from between her breasts. My case or yours, detective, I asked. Mine, I think, Jack said. He had opened the wardrobe and was searching through the rack of ritual robes and diaphanous negligees that seemed to make up the young woman's attire. One robe had slipped to the floor, where it had become tangled in a red silk scarf and a pair of extraordinarily high-heeled shoes. Perhaps, I said, if you can explain how the killer transported themselves through a locked door. We spent a few minutes fruitlessly wrapping the wood paneling and checking the back of the wardrobe and fireplace for hidden panels. The window frame was so narrow that only the most slender assassin might have slipped through, and even then the window was painted shut. The facts as we know them then, I said, Nui and Crowley retreated to their respective rooms while we sat in the parlor. Nui left, then returned to her room just after dinner. After dinner, we found her dead. Jack took a long draw of his cigarette. Mrs. Gillies left the room a moment after Nui returned. We heard her drop the tray just outside the door. There's no way she could have committed murder and prepared the ritual in such scant time, I said. She would have had seconds at most, and even if she had somehow painted the ritual markings in advance, surely Nui would have screamed or struggled when she saw them. You were with Mrs. Gillies until the pair of you returned to the dining room, and I was with the others, all except for Crowley. It's not looking good for him, is it? Still doesn't explain the locked door. I suppose he might have had another key. It's easy enough to search the house for one. Jack shook his head. But it doesn't make sense. Why invite all these people here to witness you murdering your mistress? All the scandalous reputation in the world won't do you any good in Peterhead prison. Perhaps he thought the right would work. His guardian angel. Limitless power. No, the man's a loathsome specimen, but I don't think he's a murderer. Not her murderer, anyway. Poor girl, 
I looked at the body on the bed. The memory of how she had been in life was fading, like a watercolor washed away by rain. It couldn't have been any of the others. We've been with them the whole time. Jack passed his cigarette from hand to hand. I watched the blue-gray smoke drift up to the ceiling. Someone else in the house we didn't know about? But then how would they have got up the stairs without us noticing? Jack looked thoughtful. When we came into the room, everyone went straight to the bed, didn't they? I nodded. Mrs. Gillies came through the door just after you, yes? But she hung back while the rest all ran forward. She was standing with her back to the dressing table which is where we found the key, and assumed it had been there all along. But what if she had it in her apron and replaced it on the dresser while we were distracted? It still doesn't explain how she had the time. I stopped, the memory of Nui returning to her room suddenly sharp in my mind's eye. Jack, when we saw Nui heading upstairs, the light was poor, but you said you thought she looked drunk. What if she wasn't drunk? What if the reason she was walking so unsteadily was her shoes? It took a moment for realization to dawn. Of course, her shoes. I think I'd like a word with Mrs. Gillies about now. Yes, and so would I. He cut me off with an air of triumph. You conceded the case was mine, Hilda. Not a whiff of the supernatural to any of it. There's an arrest to be made, and I'll thank you to let me do the talking. He stormed ahead, leaving me to scurry after, pausing only to gather up the crumpled clothing from bottom of Nui's wardrobe and curse him for the ungrateful swine that he was. In the parlor... Crowley was sitting with his head in his hands in the wing chair by the fireplace. Mrs. Bland opposite him, like Madame Defarge, and the two other men flanking the window with an uneasy air. Mrs. Gillies was tidying the drinks cabinet by the door in an incongruous act of domesticity. I closed the door behind us and poured a glass of whiskey for myself. Jack cleared his throat. <clears> Mrs. Gillies, I arrest you on a charge of murder. Crowley's head snapped up. Mrs. Gillies, that's impossible. Impossible. I watched the drab little housekeeper intently. She hadn't moved, but there was a sense of tension in the way she held herself, like the haunches of a cat ready to spring. You murdered Nui in her room and locked the door behind you as you left, Jack continued. There was no key in the room when we broke inside, not until you replaced it on the bedside table. And that's the sum total of your theory, Spence said. You're not telling me that Nui walked into a room covered in sigils drawn in blood, lay down and let Mrs. Gillies put a butcher knife in her chest, are you? Of course not, because there was no time for Mrs. Gillies to commit murder between Nui entering the room and Mrs. Gillies leaving it. It was her ghost, 
Coburn said, leaping to his feet. An unquiet spirit bidding us follow to the scene of her murder. Mrs. Gilly saw the spirit and dropped the tray in fear. The answer, I'm afraid, is rather more prosaic. Jack glanced at me. Miss Roxburgh, would you care to fill in the details? I thought this was your case. I took a sullen sip of my whiskey. He shrugged. You enjoy this part far more than I do. If you insist, I gulped down the smoky fire in my glass. Nui was dead before dinner, that much is true. But it was not her ghost we saw. Mrs. Gillies drugged Nui's tea, hiding the bitterness of laudanum beneath the abramelin oil. Then, while we ate, Mrs. Gillies slipped into the room, copied the abramelin ritual from Crowley's notes, and murdered her unconscious victim before leaving the body behind a locked door. Her plan relied on the fact that Nui and Crowley were both to remain undisturbed until the right, and besides, we were all busy eating. After dinner, we saw Nui return to her room and assumed she had left some time before. But what we saw was merely what we expected to see in poor light. A tall woman in a black robe with the hood pulled low, the merest flash of red visible beneath. Her ungraceful movement resulted from these painfully high-heeled shoes. I shook out the black robe and red silk scarf from the pile at my feet and draped them over my head and shoulders. It was not Nui who we saw. It was Mrs. Gillies wearing the robe and scarf over her own clothes. Once inside the room, she stuffed the borrowed clothing into the wardrobe, left, locked the door again, and dropped the tray to ensure that we all knew the exact moment she left the room. Did I miss anything, Mrs. Gillies? The housekeeper turned slowly to face me. We have the how and the who, I said. All that remains, Mrs. Gillies, is the why. I think I can help with that, Mrs. Bland raised her head from her knitting. Earlier we spoke of the tragedy of the groundskeeper and his family, the one that convinced Crowley and his admirers that he really had unleashed something terrible in Boleskine. He was a good man, my Donald, the housekeeper said. They said it was the drink, but he never touched a drop in his life till that dell there came. It was evil that got into him, pure and simple. Her eyes met mine, defiant and angry. My man, my bairns, he took what was mine, and now I've taken what's his in return. The little deception with the key and the costume, I suppose, was to imply Crowley was the only one who could have committed the murder, Mrs. Bland said, turning his reputation as a magician against him. Poor Nui seems to have paid a heavy price for your revenge, Spence said. She was as much to blame as he was, swanning about half-naked. Degenerates and sinners, all of them. Mrs. Gillies turned to me, eyes blazing with rage and defiance. And now I'll get the jail and he'll walk free. 
Is that what you think? I imagine so, I said. If you plead insanity, I imagine a good lawyer will spare you the gallows. I've no fear of that. There's nothing waiting for me on the other side that's worse than what I've endured in this life. The clock struck midnight. Look, Coburn said. He was pointing to the ceiling, and when I looked up I felt something wet drop onto my brow. Wiping by reflex, my hand came away slick with blood, just as a second droplet fell directly into my open eye. Damnation! Half-blind, I wiped at it, trying to blink the warm liquid free. Jack cursed. I heard Spence gasp, and when my vision cleared, blood was running in fat rivulets from the ceiling, pouring down the walls and through the plaster work. The room, the whole house, was rapidly filling with the scent of a bromelain oil and the acrid tang of smoke. It worked, Mrs. Gillies whispered in disbelief, and then again in triumph. It worked! A block of plaster the size of a millstone crashed from the ceiling to the ground, adding an impenetrable cloud of plaster dust and filth to the already foggy atmosphere. Jack cursed, and somewhere to my left I heard running feet. Stop her! Jack shouted, but it was impossible to see, impossible to act, until the dust had cleared and I was staring stupidly at the empty doorway. She's made a run for it! Jack drew his revolver and followed her into the hall. She's heading up the stairs! Oh, dear, Mrs. Bland said, brushing plaster fragments from her lap. This isn't good at all now, is it? I don't think so, no. Hilda, for God's sake, hurry up. I sprinted after him, taking the stairs two at a time to the upper landing, which was filling with thick black smoke. The door to Nui's room was open, amber-red light spilling out from inside it. Mrs. Gillies had her back to the wall opposite the stairhead, and Jack had his service revolver aimed squarely at her head. Back you come, Mrs. Gillies, he said, raising his voice over the crackle of the flames. I don't think I will, she shouted back, and a black shadow moved across the open threshold of the bedroom. It was Nui or rather it was something that wore her form, but could no longer be mistaken for the dead woman. Flames writhed around its feet as it stepped forward, trailing plumes of oily black smoke. Blood was pouring from its eyes, from its mouth, and from the gaping wound on its chest. Jack drew in a sharp breath, and my heart leapt, in a peculiar mixture of panic and glee as I joined him at the stairhead. Jack? His head snapped round, his voice sharp and urgent. What is it? Detective Henderson, I believe this is my case. For God's sake, Hilda! He gritted his teeth and drew a slow breath. Fine, it's your case. So what the hell's going on? I forced myself to look at the thing, those dreadful bleeding eyes, the lips stretching wide, 
the suggestion of many rows of needle-like teeth beneath. The result of the Abramelin rite, I said. It conjures the guardian of the caster's soul, or more likely, whatever is close by and listening at the right time. A total success for Mrs. Gillies, then. Crowley shoved past us, heading directly toward the thing in a skirl of black robe with Coburn close on his heels. He stopped short of the thing and drew himself up to his full height, every inch the ceremonial magician exerting his will against the forces of hell. By Avos I do conjure and abjure thee. By the pillar and arch I do command thee to leave this place. Coburn, holding his vortoscope out like a shield, crept forward, the shutter clattering over and over again as it captured the hellish scene. I had to admire the fellow's courage in the face of what must have been his first true exposure to supernatural forces. The thing in Nui's skin took a step closer to Crowley and traced a hand down its white breast until it reached the hilt of the dagger. It pulled the knife out, then stuck a finger into the wound and licked it clear with a long, forked tongue. Little actor, it said, in the crackle of flames on timber. You conjure and abjure me, you? With appalling speed, it swatted Crowley to one side. The magician's body flew through the air to slam into the wall, then crumpled motionless to the floor. Coburn looked up from his camera just in time to see the thing turn its attention to him. His eyes widened, then a deafening report filled my ears as a black hole opened like a third eye in Nui's forehead. The thing paused where it towered over Coburn, larger by far than the woman had ever been in life. For one giddy moment, I thought Jack's bullet had stopped her in her tracks, but the hole was already beginning to close. One long-fingered hand that no longer looked remotely human closed over Coburn's face and lifted him, legs thrashing, into the air. Jack's Webley barked again, and a second hole appeared at the thing's temple, but this time it barely reacted. Blood began to run down the sides of Coburn's face, the vortoscope dangling on its strap around his neck like a hangman's noose. Jack, it's not stopping, I shouted over the roar of the flames. I don't see you with a better idea. The acrid sulfur smoke in the room mingled with a sharp smell of burning keratin, and I realized that my eyebrows and hairline were beginning to singe. I tugged at Jack's arm. For God's sake, Jack, we need to go. What about them? Crowley can go to hell for all I care. And what about Coburn? I glanced over my shoulder. Mrs. Bland and Spence were standing at the bottom of the stairs. Her portmanteau was open, 
and a line of salt had been sprinkled over the carpet by the newel post. Bland's face was gazing at the corpse thing, his face contorted in a sort of horrified wonder, but hers was perfectly, incongruously calm. With an impatient little shake, the thing wearing Nui's flesh like a too small suit of clothing tossed Coburn to the floor like a discarded marionette. The eyes were huge globes of blackness now, the mouth a nightmarish clown's smile of blood-stained needle teeth. It hissed, smiled, its claws tracing down naked flesh that was now an abominable mockery of beauty and life, and I heard exultant human laughter ringing out from the far side of the upper hall. Mrs. Gillies! A sudden desperate hope rose in my breast. For God's sake, you called the thing up. Dismiss it. Control it before it ends us all. No! The word was a shriek. You can all burn for what you've done, the warlock and the rest of you along with him. The corpse thing's tongue licked across its cracked and distorted lips. Jack put another two bullets in it, one in the throat and the second in the chest. But they might have been kisses for all the attention it paid them. It was close now so close that its bulk seemed to fill the whole floor, talons inches from the revolver in Jack's outstretched hand. And then the idea came to me. There were two bullets left in Jack's handgun by my count. If I was right, one would be enough. If I was wrong, no amount of lead would be. I threw myself forward in a desperate waist-height tackle, and that, at least, it didn't seem to expect. The monster was eight feet tall now, its head wreathed in flames close to the ceiling, my skin blistering, my hair frizzling as I crashed against it. I felt a pang of regret for my ruined suit, but the sacrifice was already made. Hilda, what are you doing? Jack shouted. I can't get a clear shot with you there. You don't need a clear shot, I shouted. The air was thick with smoke, and the roaring of the fire was mixed with the cacophonous screaming of many voices, perhaps the immolated congregation of the kirk that had once stood on this ground. Not at it! Shoot past it! A hand locked around my throat, lifting me from the ground and sealing my windpipe. By reflex, I tried to draw breath, and the failure brought a sense of panic that was almost overwhelming. Black flowers blossomed behind my eyes, and I gestured desperately with my right hand, hoping that I was right, hoping that Jack would understand my frantic mummery, feeling my skin blister and crack where the thing's claws bit in deep. And then... Gunshots cracked the air in half, and I was falling, face down onto the wooden floorboards. When I opened my eyes, the smoke and flames were gone, and wrapped around my blistered throat were simply the fingers of a dead woman. Are you all right? 
Hilda, are you hurt? A strong hand rolled me onto my back, and Nui's hand flopped to the ground. I nodded, then swallowed carefully. My neck was burned and tender, but the evident concern in Jack's voice, to say nothing of the touch of his fingers on my skin, was as welcome as a glass of iced water. Success, I croaked, as I sat up to take in the scene, along with Nui's corpse and the unconscious bodies of Crowley and Coburn, a fourth figure was slumped against the far wall, blood still oozing sluggishly from the wound in her shattered sternum. Jack nodded. Success, he said, and reached down a hand to help me to my feet. You might have been a bit quicker about it, I said, and made a point of rising without his assistance. Between them, Jack and Spence managed to carry our unconscious companions to the parlor, and once they were draped over their respective chaise lounges, the remaining four of us took stock of the situation. A swelling the size of a quail's egg had risen on Crowley's delicate scalp, and around the edges of Coburn's face the corpse thing's talons had stamped an infernal Morse code in blood, but both of them were breathing evenly enough. The smoke and flames, it seemed, had all been an artifact of the demon's presence, for once its summoner was dead and the creature no longer bound, all trace of the conflagration vanished with it though my poor lost eyebrows and frizzled hairline stood as a harsh reminder of the battle. I'll wait with this lot, Jack said, motioning to Spence and Mrs. Bland. Hilda, you take your car up to Inver whatever it was, the one we passed on the way down. They'll have a police station. And what do you plan to tell them, Detective Constable? Mrs. Bland's knitting needles were out again, clicking in her hands. Two corpses, one killed with a single bullet, the other shot and stabbed to death. I can't imagine anyone believing the truth, can you? That goes for you as well, Mr. Spence. The reputation of your newspaper stands on firmer ground than this. And what do you suggest? Jack said, his jaw set. Spence was staring into empty air, his chin resting in cupped hands. I suggest you and Miss Roxburg leave. And you too, Mr. Spence. I have certain contacts who can make this problem disappear. And Crowley and Coburn? If you think I'm going to let you dispose of them, then not at all, detective. The knitting needles flashed back and forth, back and forth. Mr. Crowley will understand the merit of silence. And as for the young photographer, I rather think he's no stranger to the opium pipe. With the right suggestion at the right time, he'll put the whole thing down to a poppy dream. She's right, Jack, I said, discretion being the better part of valor and all that. And your rotten society'll stand for this, will they, Hilda? I think they'll have to. Jack glared at each of us in turn, 
frustration and reason visibly at war in him. At last he gave me a curt nod. I'll wait for you in the motor. And you, Mr. Spence? she asked. I'll do it, the newspaper man said, his voice hoarse. I don't like it, but I'll do it. Excellent. Well, now that's concluded, you should all be on your way while I take care of the rest. I paused at the door to the room as I left. The salt on the stairs, I said. She smiled. It wouldn't have held it for long, she said. But by a stroke of luck, it didn't need to. You did very well, my dear. You're a practitioner then, I said. Let's call me an interested party. Very much like yourself, Miss Roxburgh. The higher echelons of the society received information that someone at Boleskin had potential. Not Crowley, of course. The man hasn't the wit to light a lamp, let alone conjure up the dukes of hell. Mrs. Gillies. A desperately sad story. Of course, the deaths were never the result of the Abramelin rite or anything else Crowley did. The story suited the reputation he was trying to build, so he no doubt fanned those particular flames, but it was just the usual culprits. Poverty, drink, and disease. Perhaps she had genuine aptitude, or perhaps it was just the strength of her anger, her need for revenge that lent power to her workings. We'll never know now. She sighed. Another two bodies added to the pile. And I suppose it served the Society's purposes to have me here investigating Crowley. I felt a sudden rush of heat to my face. Like the Order of the Golden Dawn, drawing attention away so you could do the real work. Oh, you're far more subtle than they are. Pass me Alvin's vortoscope, will you? I'll see that the pictures end up where they need to be, where they can't do any harm. Mrs. Bland smiled at me in an indulgent motherly way. And we can trust to your friend's discretion, can't we? The threat was softly made, but the edge was razor sharp, so keen you'd never know it had cut your throat until the blood was flowing. I'll make sure of it. Excellent. Her portmanteau snapped shut with an air of finality. Then all's well that ends well, isn't it, my dear? Not exactly your case or mine in the end, then, was it? Both, I suppose, Jack said. I took the motor at a sedate pace along the winding lockside road. Still... A good job I was there, after all. I had the situation perfectly under control, I said, not taking my eyes from the road. Of course you did, just like you always do. Jack put his hand just above my knee and left it resting there, warm and heavy. We sat in silence, broken only by the rattle of the little motor, until Boleskin House and all its ghosts were lost in the hills behind us.
That was Jude Reed's The Boleskine House Affair, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen McLean is an Austin musician plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, aka Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy. Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we stare deep into the abyss with more Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.